1: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 308. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, I'm telling you, what a special little show we have lined up for you today. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is, fact article, it is Movie Soundtracks by David Raikland. Looking at Gravity. Then we have the main fiction which is Puss in DC by Pamela Sargent. Narrated, narrated should I say it, none other than Nick Cam. But... Now, get this. We've got a special guest on the show, and that special guest is going to be right the way throughout the show. Accompany me on 308, sure. It is none other than just recently retired analog editor Stanley Schmidt. Yes, we have Stan on right the way through the show, talking about his life, analog, and everything like that. So you can't get better than that, man. Come on, the man himself. Now, before we get into kind of this show, I'm just going kind to of get a little heads up. I seen a post on Boing Boing today by Corey and Yuji Foster is, or has aggressive cancer and I just didn't even realize, didn't even know at all. And she's actually got medical insurance. That's kind of a bit of a saving grace, but apparently it's, you know, it's been cut and it's been changed and swapped and it's not as, you know, it, I don't suppose it was ever thought of that this kind of treatment would be needed on it. You know what I mean? So. What I'm asking is, would you be kind enough to kind of go over there to UG's site? I mean, when you think we played, she's kind enough to give us some stories. And Larry narrated one of her stories over on Escape Pod. And then I've just played it over on Tales to Terrify. And I just thought, you know, I'd give a little shout out. Hopefully we can kind of send some donations UG's way. Just to, you know I mean, to say thank you for what she's done. And hopefully to get over this kind of hideous news that just kind of hit that family Ug, it like I say, it's just my, you know, sincere thoughts go out to you, and fingers crossed, you know, you can get over this and get it sorted and get back on your feet. So I now have on the line the fantastic Stanley Schmidt. Stan, how kind of you to come on Starship Sofa. Oh, how kind of you to invite me. So this is honestly, it's a, it's a great honour to be quite honest. Do you know what I mean? It's just to have, you know analogues has been there kind of right I think for everyone who's into science fiction Analog's been there you know it's like kind of one of the it is one of the cornerstones of short story writing and then your career in there as well you've been there for so long is it right you were you're even longer than Campbell himself yeah not by much
3: but uh, I wound up being there a little bit longer than John <laughs> uh, (laughs) In a sense, my connection with analog goes back before my birth because uh, I I started reading it when I was about nine at the instigation of my father, and he was already a second-generation reader. I read some of my first issues uh, in copies that I literally rescued from Grandpa's attic.
2: Did you think you would stay so long, or was it were you thinking? Well, I'll give it a couple of years because I like science fiction. I'm keen on it, and it would be a nice something nice on my CV. Did you ever think you were going to be there for <laughs> to beat the man himself?
3: Well, no. I I, I actually wasn't planning to do that. I uh, the, the the job was an awful lot of fun, but there are an awful lot of other things that I enjoy too. So uh, I, I was thinking that I would stay there until. Uh, maybe, oh, five years ago, but uh, not not because I was tired of it or couldn't do it anymore. I, I, I could hardly imagine a better job for me, but as I say, there are many other things that I would like to do, too, and I wasn't having enough time for those for the last 34 years. But uh, when I started thinking about how to retire from it, I found that uh, New York is an insane place to do that. I <laughs> couldn't afford to. So I had to go through all the hassle of finding another place that I would like to live and uh, trying to sell a house in a terrible market and buy one 700 miles away and move
2: to it. So things have been busy lately. So, so was Analog then, Was that a, like a full-time job? It's like a, a nine-to-five job where you go in an office, you sit down, you do work, you have your dinner, back to work and then back home. Is that how it, it worked for you?
3: Well, not not actually. It it, it is a full time job, but uh well, when I started doing it I was doing it I was going into the office in New York three days a week. One day, I guess around nineteen eighty five, Joel Davis, who was then the publisher, uh called me in and said, You know, we've been thinking about how to reduce our real estate bills by maybe not using uh, as much office space, like by having people only here part of the time, would you be willing to consider just coming in one day a week and working at home the rest of the time? And I said, well, I could think about that <laughs> while well, trying not to jump up and down with joy because uh, actually the office is a terrible place to do that kind of work. There are too many distractions. I, I could do it much better at home. So. Uh, for the last 20-plus uh, years, I had been working mostly at home. Uh, as I say, it was pretty much a full-time job, but I could do it largely on my own schedule and just go into the office one day a week, which I like to do because I, I like to see my colleagues once in a while and make sure the people who wrote the paychecks remembered who I was.
2: What was Stan, what was the it's I'm trying to kind of visualize uh, the the actual analog office. Can you describe it for her? <laughs> well, it it's
3: varied over the years, but in general it's a lot less impressive than people would think. It's it's a simple thing. I, I occasionally had people visiting from out of town call me up and say, uh, "I've been a fan of your magazine for decades." could you spare a few minutes for me to come up to the office and let me see where the magic happens? <laughs> and I said, sure, come ahead. And they would come up and look around and say, this is it. <laughs> because, uh, what, what we typically had was, uh, a room with two people in it, uh, me and my managing editor, whoever that happened to be at the time. And, uh, during some periods the art director was in the next room and in other periods that wasn't the case. but usually it was just a desk or two in a room.
2: And, uh, but it's still it where the magic it's, it's still where the magic happened though Stan <laughs> <laughs> did, did there come a point though then Stan, then, in, your, in your life where you thought, you know I, I'm not see, I'm not being cheeky I said you're getting too old for it or, what was the kind of the nail in the coffin that you thought, you know enough's enough. Uh, no, it, it, it was
3: just that, uh, I, I figured, I was thinking in terms of what, uh, in our country is usually thought of as, uh, a, a normal retirement age, like, uh, 65. And, uh, my father managed to retire a little earlier than that. I was hoping to follow his example, but, uh, uh too many things are just too expensive in New York. Um, so that... That, that was one consideration that I, I wanted to get out or, around that period. But I also it was also very important to me to make sure that the I left the magazine in good hands because I look forward to reading ag- again for the rest of my life and hopefully writing stories and articles for it once in a while. So I wanted to be sure that there was somebody in place who was going to keep it my kind of magazine. So uh, when the time started getting close, I gave the folks at Dell Magazines, the current publishers, um, a list of people who I thought had the peculiar, quirky set of qualifications that job needed and uh, strongly urged them to pick one of those people, and they did. So I, I think I've left the magazine in good hands, and it's kind of fun to be able to just sit back and read it in its published form now instead of having to make a buy, reject, or troubleshoot decision about everything I read.
2: That must be, actually, that must be really strange, because it's a little bit strange for me, you know, putting this show again. I kind of appreciate the show without, you know, the kind of the edits coming in and cutting and piercing and everything. So it must be really nice for you just to pick up the magazine and enjoy it for what it is. Yep
3: and I, I still keep my hand in a little bit i'm i'm doing a little bit of consulting when once in a while trevor will have something that he'd like me to look at the science in or something like that and i have a guest editorial coming up in some issue fairly soon who so knows what else i'll wind up doing
2: who who is the editor now then
3: stun uh the the editor now is trevor Cashri. that's uh spelled q u a c h r i and uh he was my right-hand man at Analog for uh, the last uh, 13 years or so before I left. So he knew the magazine inside and out. He knew our current writers, and they knew and respected him. And so he's carrying on, and uh, presumably he's already started the process of discovering his own new writers.
2: What's it like then, Stan? I mean, this must be for anybody hitting retirement. Just to, you know, that first day, that first week when you, you realize – you don't have the job no more, you know what I mean? And especially something as iconic as analogue. Is it a little bit quiet out there for you now? <laughs> well, uh, I, I
3: have been amazed at how much work there is connected with moving into a place and uh, settling into it for months and months afterwards. It's taken much longer than I expected, Uh But uh, uh, for instance, just yesterday, uh, we went out to celebrate because we were finally able to start parking both cars in the garage for the first time. (laughs) Uh, But uh, no, there's no shortage of things to do here. I'm uh, increasingly getting back to doing more of my own writing. uh, I'm working on a novel that I've been promising my agent for far too long and uh, starting to uh, to get some short stories going again and things like that. Plus, uh, I have long been a musician, and one of my concerns when I left the New York area was would I be able to find musical groups to play with here? Well, I uh, have already played with and dropped out of two because I moved on to two better ones. I'm now playing in a uh, symphony orchestra and a concert band, Plus, I'm living in one of the uh, best hiking areas in the country, and both Joyce and I are hikers, so we're taking advantage of that every chance we get.
2: Well, Stan, what we'll do is we'll come back. We're going to play a little fact article now, and then we'll come back and have a little chat afterwards. Okay. So then, next up is science fiction movie soundtracks by our very own David Raiklin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to
0: Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the starship. This time, we'll be listening to the soundtrack to Gravity, the stunning 3D sci-fi hit starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, directed by Alfonso Cuarón. It's garnering all kinds of rave reviews around the world, and doing boffo box office looks like a shoe-in to win best visual effects. It's uh, really an amazing film, and it has a really cool score by Stephen Price, a electronico-organic-hybrid kind of sound that fits the film very well. And there's more. This time we'll also be listening to listener requests, ones from wonderful listeners like yourself. Michael, J, Kenneth, and Ariel, we're going to honor your requests this time. So let's start with music from Gravity. And we'll start with the music from the opening sequence of the film, entitled Above Earth. This cue starts very quietly, kind of gently materializing. But then it builds to a ginormous climax. So watch your speakers. Above Earth. That was Above Earth, from the soundtrack to Gravity by Stephen Price. That misty blend of electronica and orchestra and effects is achieved by actually taking all of those categories and recording them in the normal fashion and then heavily processing them, especially by slowing them down. We've had hybrid scores, as you guys may recall, all the way back to the 1930s, mixing electronics and acoustic instruments. Now we have technology that allows us to really transform one sound into another, slow it down thousands of times, record very unusual sound sources and blend them together. And this is really a sound effect or design kind of score, although there are themes. like For instance, in that introduction, you heard just a little bit of the theme for the Sandra Bullock character Ryan Stone. and Ryan's theme does reoccur, but this is not a melodic type of score. The effects part of this, which are generated both electronically and by recording sound effects and also by processing orchestral sounds, really come to the fore in the disaster sequence called Debris. Debris from the Soundtrack to Gravity by Stephen Price. It was important to the director to be true to the physics of space. There is no sound in space. If there's an explosion or an impact, it has to be metaphorically represented in the music with deep, resonant, impactful music. There is sound, of course, because inside the astronaut's suit or anywhere that there is atmosphere, There's sounds, and those have a very intimate and powerful effect, a little reminiscent of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But the soundtrack is a kind of reaction, an emotional response to the impact. So it isn't so much trying to create an explosion as to create the feeling of the ambience of an explosion, if that makes any sense. And it works beautifully in the context of the film. Let's take a quick break now from Gravity and the Matters Interstellar and come to our listener requests. Many of them are from video games, and we're going to honor three of them today, and then a fourth one that's uh, from a movie soundtrack. The first one we're going to take a listen to is the main theme from Batman Arkham City, the smash hit success to the equally successful Batman Arkham Asylum. Both have scores by... Nick Arendelle and Ron Fish, and the opening title is by Nick Arendelle. It has a lot in common with the current Batman franchise. Dark, dense music with synthesizer, pulse, motor rhythms in the strings, and even an epic choir that comes in within the first 30 seconds. But it sets a great dramatic scenario for a video game, or even for a film. Here it is, Batman Arkham City, main theme. was the main title to Batman Arkham City, music by Nick Arundel. This fits very well in the musical universe of the current Batman films as well. Deep, dark, pulsing music with synthesizer, rhythm, big, blaring brass, choir, wonderful, dramatic music to set the scene for the game. It also would work probably just as well in the movie. It's Convergence. All right, now let's turn to another listener request from a J for Music from Katamari Damacy, another video game, and a delightful soundtrack that won a soundtrack of the year, I think it was in 2004, and was so successful, the game itself, that it spawned seven or eight spin spin-offs or sequels. There's too many songs for us to listen to all of them, but we'll start with the main title, which has a fun, kind of quirky Japanese pop music feel. <laughs> Katamari on the Rocks from Katamari Damasi, the video game. Music by Miyaki. It's delightful Japanese pop music, and I hope you enjoyed it. Next, we're going to move to another video game, but this one so radically different than the two previous ones. This is Vampire the Masquerade. We're going to listen to Disturbed and Twisted. Disturbed and Twisted from Vampire the Masquerade Bloodline video game. This is a game that has actually taken on a life of its own with fan mods and alternative soundtracks. There were a lot of pop songs in there, but we're listening to music by Rick Schaefer, who also has worked on a number of other successful video games, including X Men. I hope you enjoyed that, Michael and maybe we'll have a chance to revisit this score, which very much is like the soundtrack to a horror film with a beautiful balance between organic and twisted electronic sounds. Great. Now let's listen to the last listener request for this episode of the soundtrack show, The Flight of the Navigator. It's a heartwarming family sci-fi film that came out around the same time as E.T. and Starman. It's about a young boy who gets hijacked by benign aliens, travels through time, and all ends well. The soundtrack is by Avengers composer Alan Silvestri. Here he's in a lighthearted Disney kind of magic realm with high-floating strings and woodwinds, electronic effects that are just there to add an extra little aura of sci-fi magic. Also some trademark Al Silvestri drum machine action. So here's the main title from The Flight of the Navigator. title from Flight of the Navigator, a marvelous science fantasy film scored by Alan Silvestri and requested by one of you dear listeners, Ariel. Hope you enjoyed it. It's worth listening to the whole score and go on a nostalgic adventure. That brings us back to the world of science fiction film scoring and our preview of the soundtrack to Gravity. We're now further along into the film, and while there are those processed electronic components everywhere... As we get towards the last act of the film, and poetically as we get closer to Earth, the use of live orchestra becomes more and more prominent to express the deep emotions, the grandeur of her odyssey. Yes, now on the final stretch of her incredible adventure marooned in outer space, this cue is called Shenzhou, and that's a Chinese spacecraft that she's finally made her way to as her last Step on the Journey Home, and we're going to listen to the orchestral score again by Stephen Price. There's electronics in there, but it's a very intense orchestral score as well. Shenzhou, Music from the Soundtrack to Gravity by Stephen Price. This is at a key dramatic juncture where our heroine, Ryan, goes through a tremendous mental and spiritual transformation to regain the will to live and the mental clarity to fly the Chinese spacecraft. Quite an amazing cue, and it's topped only by the final cue of the film, Gravity, where she has finally completed her journey and stands once again. And this as the voices, human voices, that have been there throughout the whole film, but now you can hear them with great clarity. They're no longer processed. They're alive. Gravity from the film of the same name, music by Stephen Price, performed by the London Symphony. On an interesting note, if you've got good speakers, especially with a subwoofer, you'll note that throughout the film there's a perceptible but almost inaudible pulse, and that's reflective of the heartbeat of the characters. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction fantasy video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Contact me, David Rakeland at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraiklen.com. Music and interviews copyright their
2: respective owners. David, big thank you. Thank you so much. And like spot on timing. Like, see, this film, I've not seen a bad bit of reviews for Gravity. Do you know what I mean? I kind of seen the trailer. First trailer came out oodles ago. And you're kind of thinking, oh eh, what, what? And even now, you know, the premise is like, what, what's going on? But. Everyone's saying white knuckle ride tension. Do you know what I mean? So, and again, I haven't seen a bad review. So, if anyone's seen it, you know, pop over the site, leave a comment on the website or go to Facebook on the Starships of a fan page or on my little posts. You know, tell me what you think because I'm desperate to see it, to be quite honest. So, it'd be nice to find out your thoughts on it. There you go. So, Stan, then fact articles because Analog does fact articles as well. Were you. Again, as the editor, have you got, are you the final one that picks them, you know, the choice of, or do you have somebody else for the the fact article side of things?
3: Now, I always did the fact articles myself, and Trevor is doing that too, although I may be acting as a consultant when he wants a second opinion on some. Uh, As you may know, I have a scientific background myself. In fact, uh, right before I became editor of Analog, I was a... uh, physics professor at a college in Ohio, and uh, also had pretty close dealings with members of uh, some of the other science departments at the college. Uh, For example, uh, I actually met my wife while I was helped teaching a field biology course in West Virginia.
2: I'd say what I'm interested in then, Stan, is, you know, why leave an institution, you know, like a kind of a career, which I guess you've trained for in, you know, the ac- academic side and being like a teacher, a lecturer, to move into like just being a, a pulp magazine editor?
3: Well, I, I never thought of the editor of Analog as just an editor. That, that's, I had always thought that uh, that must be one of the most fun jobs in the world, uh, being able to make a living reading stories, getting to know writers, uh, pick out art, all kinds of things like that. Uh, I had a a soapbox that I could get up on once a month and write editorials to make people mad and write letters to me. Uh, (laughs) I thought that John Campbell must have had had a lot of fun with that. And I thought I would like to do some of that too. So when the chance came along, I uh, couldn't pass it up. It just sounded like too much fun. And it was. And, uh, Also, people sometimes have asked me uh, a related question to yours. They said, uh, how do you feel about leaving teaching? And my answer to that is that I never left teaching. Uh, Teaching is a very important part of the analog editor's job. One of my most important functions was to discover new writers who hadn't quite developed their toolkits yet and help them learn to be as good writers as they could be. In a way, uh, although it wasn't in a classroom, what I was doing was a kind of teaching that probably every classroom teacher has secretly dreamed about on really bad days. I only had to spend time on those students who I thought were really worth it, and those include some of the brightest and most highly motivated people you could ever hope to meet.
2: You know, Stan, it's just fascinating listening to you. And I remember ages ago, I spoke to... Christine Catherine Rush. Now, you you mentioned there about kind of, you know, like teaching writers and you actually yourself, you know, wanting to get back into writing. Now, and I forget who actually Christine said, but it was a famous editor. I don't know if it was Campbell or someone like that said, you couldn't really be an editor and a writer. You know, you, you kind of have to choose which it's going to be. Is Did you find that as well? When you were, you know, editing analogue, you just couldn't do your writing. It is a little hard to...
3: Uh, give as much energy to both as you would like. I, I found I was on a panel with uh, Chris and a couple of other people about wearing two hats. Everybody on the panel was both an editor and a writer, and we were talked about we were talking about how we could make them work. And uh, I think it may have been Chris uh, I said that uh, it seemed to me that one of the problems was that editing and writing used very similar kinds of energy. Uh, so, that if I'm spending a lot of time editing, it makes it a little hard to have that kind of energy left, uh, to say nothing of time, to do the writing. And she said she thought of them as very different kinds of energy, but for me, very different kinds mean like doing writing and doing science or music or art or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I did find that uh, I. While I was editing full-time, I was still writing, but I was nowhere near as prolific as I was before I became an editor, which is one reason I wanted to get away from the editing finally, so that I could start devoting more time to the writing. Uh, I never thought of myself as very prolific, but if you look at the 1970s, before I became editor, I was actually one of the more frequent uh, authors appearing in Analog occasionally in other places.
2: You know, going back to when you were doing the writing, did they just advertise the job in Analog? But actually, this is kind of a long, complicated story. I, uh, When I was
3: teaching at the college, I was also moonlighting as a freelance writer uh, for Analog. I was uh, appearing in Analog pretty often in those days, and in particular, uh, my my. Ben serialized my first novel, The Sins of the Fathers, and then run seg- segments of its uh, sequel, Lifeboat Earth, as novellas. And it happened that those were very popular with the readers. So Ben apparently really liked what I was doing as a writer. And when I was at the college, I also somehow wound up on the committee that invited guest lecturers to the campus. And one of those guest lecturers was Ben. He came out and uh, not only gave a public lecture for anybody who wanted to come, but I had him visit the science fiction class that I was teaching at the college. And he claims that uh, what he saw about the way I was running my class convinced him that he would like me to replace him when he left. So when he decided to leave, he called me up and started heading me in that direction.
2: And there you go. The rest is history, sir. (laughs) yes
3: and i'm glad it worked out that way
2: well stan what we're going to do now and and you very kindly offer to to help in this we're going to play the main fiction which is a pamela Sargent story called puss in dc now oh stan i've asked you if you'd be kind enough to read out the bio for pamela Sargent. now this is actually a bit of an honor we're getting stan smith to read out the bio. to do it's like it's like home from home stan it's like doing some work So would you be kind enough then, Stan, just to read out Pamela Sargent's bio?
3: Pamela Sargent has won the Nebula and Locus Awards, been a finalist for the Hugo Award, Theodore Sturgeon Award, and Sidewise Award, and was honoured in 2012 with the Pilgrim Award, given for lifetime achievement in science fiction and fantasy scholarship by the Science Fiction Research Association. She is the author of the science fiction novels Cloned Lives, The Sudden Star, Watch Star, The Golden Space, The Alien Upstairs, Eye of the Comet, Holmes Mind, Alien Child, The Shore of Women, Venus of Dreams, Venus of Shadows, and Child of Venus, as well as the alternative history, Climb the Wind. Ruler of the Sky, her 1993 historical novel about Genghis Khan, was a bestseller in Germany and Spain. She also edited the Women of Wonder anthologies, the first collections of science fiction by women, published in the 1970s by Vintage Random House and in updated editions during the 1990s by Harcourt Brace. Her other anthologies are Afterlives, edited with Ian Watson, Biofutures, and Conqueror Fantastic. Tor Books reissued her 1983 young adult novel, Earthseed, selected as a best book for young adults by the American Library Association, and a sequel, Farseed, in early 2007. Farseed was chosen by the New York Public Library for their 2008 Books for the Teenage list of best books for young adults. A third novel, Seed Seeker, was published in 2010. Earthseed is in development by Paramount Pictures, with Melissa Rosenberg, scriptwriter for all five Twilight films, set to write and produce through her Tall Girls Productions. Sargent sold her first published story as a senior in college at the State University of New York, Binghamton University, where she earned a BA and MA in philosophy and also studied ancient history and Greek. Her short fiction has appeared in magazines and anthologies, including The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Asimov's SF Magazine, New Worlds, World Literature Today, Amazing Stories, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone magazine, Universe, Nature, and Polyphony, and in her collection, Star Shadows, The Best of Bama Sargent, The Mountain Cage and Other Stories, Behind the Eyes of Dreamers, and other short novels, Eye of Flame, Fun Prince, and most recently, Dream of Venus and Other Science Fiction Stories, published by the Borgo Press, Wildside Press, in 2012. Her short story, The Shrine, was produced for the syndicated TV anthology series, Tales from the Dark Side, recently re-released on DVD. Michael Moorcock has said about her writing, If you have not read Pamela Sargent, then you should make it your business to do so at once. She is in many ways a pioneer, both as a novelist and as a short story writer. She is one of the best. Pamela Sargent
2: lives in Albany, New York. So the Starship Sova is very proud to
1: present... Puss in D.C. by Pamela Sargent I was trained to be discreet, to keep my extraordinary abilities to myself, but still retain my dreams of public glory, of being openly acknowledged for my accomplishments. Perhaps one day I'm used to myself while grooming my fur or lying about on my favourite pillow, I'll be able to dictate my memoirs and set them down on paper. Given the stories I have to tell, there's no question that my book could fetch a large advance from a major publishing house. I can hardly watch television lately without imagining myself matching wits with Charlie Rose or responding to Larry King's amiable goofball questions with answers that would shame him with my eloquence. Surely Opera would be interested in a guest who would most likely be the first ever to sit on her lap during the interview.' And if Bill O'Reilly got excessively argumentative, a snarl and a display of my front claws should be enough to calm him down. As for book signings, my paw print on the title page ought to serve as well as an autograph. I would, of course, insist on certain amenities during the rigours of any book tour. "'a personal assistant to help with grooming and running errands, "'a comfortable carrying case with ample cushioning, "'shrimp and crab meat at least once a day, "'bottled spring water and the occasional bowl of cream, 1st class seating instead of consignment to the luggage and cargo hold, "'and a good workout chasing mice at least two or three times a week. "'I dream of it all.' "'being number one on the New York Times and Amazon lists, "'being offered a fat chunk of cash for the movie rights to my story, "'and, most importantly, "'finally receiving the credit that I deserve for all I've done. "'Not that my life is so bad as it is, "'and there are certain impediments to full disclosure. "'There's my knowledge of certain agency operations, for one thing— although I would happily make an agreement not to give away any classified information. And Maury, in spite of his gratitude for everything I've helped him accomplish so far, probably wouldn't want the world to know exactly how much he owes to me, especially now, with more victories assuredly lying ahead of him. And there's also the matter of my legal rights, since, as a cat... I currently lack the status to sign contracts and make any binding agreements and wouldn't care to spend the rest of my life in court being a test case for animal rights. So, perhaps these musings of mine should be regarded as mental notes for a memoir I'll probably never be able to write. The agency was where my life truly began, with Maury's father, Charles Carabbas, as my caretaker and mentor. I have no memory of my life before Mr. Carabbas found me, an abandoned kitten outside his house in Georgetown. Moved by my piteous meows and my plight, he took me in and gave me a home. As a widower who lived alone, he was grateful for my presence, since his son Maury was in law school at the time and came home only for holidays. Not long after Mr. Carabas had given me shelter, he discovered that I had the ability to speak when I, tiring of my usual fare, but lightly requested a can of tuna for supper. A lesser person might have been convinced that he had gone mad and run to a psychiatrist. A more fearful one might have regarded me as a freak of nature and disposed of me somehow. It was my good fortune that Mr. Carabas not only welcomed a feline companion with whom he could carry on a conversation, but also enabled me, with his example, to acquire a verbal facility I might otherwise never have attained. He was an erudite man, a graduate of Harvard and Oxford, and an occasional lecturer in political philosophy and foreign affairs at Georgetown University. He read voraciously and spoke several languages, which is how I managed to pick up French, Spanish, German, some Japanese, and even a decent command of Arabic. And Because he had been employed by the agency for almost forty years, he had also been well-schooled in secrecy and discretion, and taught me to follow his example. I concealed my conversational abilities from other human beings, even from Maury when he was home between semesters. "'Often Mr. Karabas brought me to his office "'at the agency headquarters in Langley, Virginia. "'His fellow intelligence officers tolerated this eccentricity "'out of their esteem for the old man. "'I knew how to conduct myself, "'was soon roaming freely from the seventh-floor offices of the chiefs "'down to the cubbyholes on the floors below, "'and quickly became a kind of mascot. Analysts, operatives, and directors welcomed me into their offices, "'offered me toys stuffed with catnip.' "'fed me treats fetched from the building's dining-room, "'allowed me to nap on their desks or in chairs, "'and marvelled at my ability to perch on toilet seats in the restrooms "'in order to relieve myself, "'thus sparing anyone from having to maintain and clean a litter-box for me. "'Mr. Carabas had named me Angleton, "'after James Jesus Angleton, "'the legendary chief of counterintelligence during the agency's glory days.' and it was a more suitable moniker for me than any of his colleagues realised. As I prowled the hallways and perched on desks, I overheard a good many tidbits and passed the tastiest of them along to my human companion. Learning how to read, which presented fewer impediments than mastering speech, also enabled me to surreptitiously peruse many a highly classified document, and as a result... Mr. Carabas cemented his reputation as someone who knew all, could never be deceived, and was to be feared and respected. My mentor and caretaker often thought of retiring. For well over a decade and a half, the agency had endured scandals, humiliating congressional hearings, ruined careers and rules that had made nearly everyone overly cautious and suspicious. Operatives, who might be required to support covert operations, took out liability insurance, foreseeing the day when they might have to face committees of angry politicians demanding answers, along with heavy legal bills. Analysts who reported to the chief of counterterrorism sifted through their data to the point of obsessiveness, fearing that they might miss important clues and thus have to live with being responsible for the death of fellow citizens, deaths they might have prevented. All of them were deeply suspicious of a government that promised them support one day, yet might leave them all hanging out to dry the next. The atmosphere in Langley was not a healthy one and Mr. Carabas had been warned by his doctors that stress was taking its toll on his heart. But he was a patriot and devoted to his craft. He would do what he could for his country for as long as possible. I often think of the last operation he dreamed up but was never able to carry out, the one in which I would have had a crucial role to play. This was during the time a certain Middle Eastern dictator had gone from being a thorn in our side to becoming a knife aimed at our nation's throat. Mr. Carabas, dismayed at the increasing likelihood of war, he had always regarded warfare as a massive failure of intelligence in both senses, had come up with a plan. He spoke of his scheme one evening when we were by ourselves. His catering service had dropped off several prepared meals for his consumption on those nights when he wasn't out dining with friends or at Washington's Better Restaurants, while the cleaning woman who came in three days a week had left late that afternoon. "'I need your assistance, Angleton,' Mr. Crabbe said to me as I dined on chopped chicken livers and he sipped brandy. "'It would mean blowing your cover and risking your life, so I won't hold it against you if you decide not to volunteer.' I felt my whiskers twitch. "'Go on, sir,' I replied, feeling that I owed it to Mr. Krabbis to hear him out. His plan, to put it simply, was to smuggle me into the dictator's country with a couple of operatives who were working with that nation's resistance movement. A fast-acting and deadly toxin would be applied to my claws, and I would be turned loose near whatever palace was currently housing the tyrant.' My mission was to locate that disagreeable fellow, administer the powerful and inevitably fatal poison with a few scratches of my claws, and then make my escape. That's the beauty of it, Mr. Krabbas continued. Whatever suspicions might be aroused afterwards, no one would be able to prove that it was an assassination, and there wouldn't be any of those blasted hearings with all those windbags in the House and Senate. He peered at me over his snifter, but it's a lot to ask of you. I might have a problem getting close to the man, I said. He's extremely paranoid, heavily guarded, and has a fetish for personal hygiene. I had picked up those details while eavesdropping on some round table discussion at agency headquarters. All true enough, but he also has a great fondness for cats. "'Magnus Richard confirmed that with one of his deep-cover contacts just the other day. "'That's what gave me the idea. "'Apparently there are cats in every one of the dictator's palaces and hideaways at all times.' "'No doubt doubling as his food-tasters,' I murmured. "'That was also in the report given to Magnus,' Mr. Krabba said." "'My biggest problem might be getting past the other cats "'without engaging in a territorial dispute. "'If I end up clawing one of them in a fight "'and the cat kills over, that would give our whole game away.' "'Mr. Carabbas set down his snifter as I leapt into his lap. "'As I told you,' he said while scratching me behind the ear, "'this has to be your decision. "'I'll understand if you refuse.' "'Actually,' It wasn't the dangers of the mission that gave me pause. If my human handlers could get me into the country and anywhere near the target, I knew that I could accomplish my task. What worried me more was what might happen afterwards. My accomplices, and probably others in the agency, would have to be informed of my abilities if they were to trust me to carry out the mission. Could I rely on all of them to keep my secret?' Would I, instead of being rewarded for my success, end up as a prisoner, a caged experimental subject at a government laboratory? Even worse, how could I be sure that the agency would want to keep me alive after the operation was over? I would, after all, be a loose thread that could tie our intelligence service to the assassination of a foreign leader. Another danger— However remote was that some counter spy planted within the agency by a foreign power might learn about me. Such a mole might try to do away with me, or might even be foolish enough to think that I could be turned with bribes of lobster, live meister chase, and other such luxuries. But in any case, my life would become much more precarious. I said as much to Mr. Carabas. If I could take you on this mission myself, he replied, I would, but i have been out of that game for too long. I can promise you that I won't send you in without people I trust implicitly. That was good enough for me. I'm in, Mr. Carabas. I curled up on his lap and settled in for a nice long nap, dreaming of my eventual triumph. A week later, just before Maury was to receive his law degree, Mr. Carabas suffered his last heart attack. He was already dead by the time two fellow officers found him in his office, slumped over his desk, his ever-present cup of black coffee spilled across his papers. Had he brought me to the office that day, perhaps I might have saved him. A resonant and persistent repetition of meows might have summoned others to his side in time. I padded through the house all that night alone and frantic, fearing for him. Letitia Knowles, our cleaning woman, arrived the next morning at her usual time. Magnus Richard rang the front doorbell only a few minutes later. "'There was nothing they could do for Charles,' Mr. Richard said to Miss Knowles before he had even taken off his coat. "'He's gone. We'll have to call his son.' "'That was how I learned of Mr. Krabbis's passing.' "'Whether he ever had the opportunity to broach the subject of my Middle Eastern mission to Mr. Richard or to anyone else at the agency, I did not know. Maury flew home immediately to take charge of the funeral arrangements. "'The Requiem Mass was held at the Dahlgren Chapel on the Georgetown University campus, according to Mr. Carabas's wishes, "'but the majority of mourners chose to pay their respects to his son at home rather than attend the funeral itself.' I well understood their reasons for avoiding the service. For such a large contingent of intelligence officers, politicians, cabinet secretaries, and notorious figures who had been forced to testify at congressional hearings about agency operations to show up at the mass might have aroused too much curiosity and attention. Even so, I wished that there could have been more of a crowd, that I might have been present at the right "'Consultations with Mr. Carabas's executors "'revealed that nearly everything would have to be sold, "'including the Georgetown house, in order to cover everything, "'leaving Maury with what can only be called a modest inheritance. "'Well, little body,' Maury said to me one late August night, "'after the bad news had finally sunk in, "'I guess it's just you and me now. "'I was lying next to him and offered him a few subdued purrs, grateful to realize that he apparently regarded me as part of his father's legacy. Don't know what's going to happen, but I'll always look out for you, Angleton. I know how much you meant to Dad. I rested my head on my front paws as I considered our situation. Maurice Carabas had, unfortunately, not inherited his sire's considerable intellect— Attendance at one of the country's finest preparatory schools had not entirely prepared young Maury for his father's alma mater of Harvard, to which he was admitted only through much covert pulling of strings. He had flunked out of Harvard after two semesters, barely managed to graduate from Georgetown a few years after that, and considerably more string-pulling had been required to get him into a minor law school in the South. That he had finally succeeded in earning a law degree was either a miracle or else a function of that particular law school's lack of rigour. How he was going to establish himself in the world without his father's guidance was not a matter I cared to contemplate too deeply. Yet Morrie, I knew, had some potential. He was, as human beings measure such qualities, an extremely handsome young man. His lack of academic accomplishment had been in part caused by a deep devotion to the pursuits of tennis and golf, but such athletic skills would be useful in enabling him to meet people who might benefit him socially. And he was kind and loyal. He had readily accepted his responsibility for me, with no thought of giving me away or consigning me to a shelter. I knew then that I could not keep my secret from him any longer. I sat up, "'gazed directly at him, and said, "'Maurice, there is something about me that you should know.' "'Hey, you can call me Maury,' he said absently. "'A few moments later his eyes suddenly widened and his brows shot up. "'You can talk?' "'I just did, didn't I? "'Your father and I used to engage in many long discourses whenever we were alone. "'I... I don't suppose I need to explain to you why we thought it best to keep that to ourselves. He was still gaping at me. You can talk," he said again. "Yes, I can talk in English and in other languages as well. Je parle français, watakushi wa nihongo ga wakarimachu ik. I get the picture." Maurice shook his head. I. I always knew Dad was smart, but I didn't think he could teach a cat how to talk. He didn't teach me how to talk. He was as surprised as you were when I revealed my vocal talents. What he taught me was a certain degree of eloquence. Maybe some other stuff, too, Maury said. Like, I always knew he was a spook, even if I don't know much about what he actually did, so I guess he taught you how to keep a secret, too. That he did, I said, and it would be wise of you to keep this one. You don't have to worry about that, old buddy. If I told people I had a talking cap, I'd probably end up in the hat factory. Hell, maybe I am crazy, but if it was just me imagining this, you probably wouldn't sound so smart. He sighed. I guess you know what we're up against then. Dad didn't leave me a whole lot. I figure it. Might be just enough for me to go back to Florida and see what I can set up for myself there. There's a couple of guys I knew at law school who might be able to find me a gig in Tallahassee. Is that what you want? I asked. I don't know. I always thought I'd end up back here in Washington. I mean, never really thought about living anywhere else, but we've got to be practical now. He patted me gently on the head. I said I'd look after you, Angleton, and I'll it. I won't leave Florida without you. I was moved, even though the prospect of spending my remaining years in the Florida panhandle was less than enticing. An idea was forming in my mind. But there's no reason to leave your hometown, I said, and seek your fortune elsewhere. There would be far better hunting for you in Washington than in Tallahassee. Maybe, he said. "'but I can't afford to live here now. "'You'll have a nest egg after everything's sold. "'Would you like my advice?' I asked. "'Sure. "'Use the money to stay in Washington and leave everything else to me. "'I've learned a few skills that might stand us both in good stead.' "'Really?' "'I fixed him with a stare. "'Just listen to me, young Morrie.' and you may find out that you have more of a legacy than you realise. Mr. Carabas's belongings were auctioned off, the house sold, and the taxes and debts paid, leaving Maury with a slightly larger sum than he had expected. We might have invested some of the money, but Maury knew nothing of such matters. I... Given the unfortunate example of Mr. Carabbas knew little more than more did about finances, but in any case the plans I had for him and myself did not involve living modestly on a pittance, being bystanders at life's game instead of players. His father, my rescuer, would have pulled enough strings to get his son set up in a suitable position. In his absence, I could do no less.' We have to move out by the end of this month, I said to him one evening in Mr. Carabas's library. The built-in bookshelves were empty, all the rare books having been sold at auction, and we were sitting on the floor, since the leather chairs and reading lamps had also been taken away by their new owners. I know, Maury replied as he fed me an anchovy from his pizza, but every place I've looked at has rent that's too high. About the only place we could afford would be some shithole in a really bad neighbourhood. "'Taking up residence in a shithole "'would hardly improve your future prospects, Maury. "'I suggest instead that we move to the Watergate complex "'and purchase some living space there. "'It's come to my attention "'that there are some apartments available in Watergate South. "'I had found that out at the latest auction "'of Mr. Carabas's possessions "'when one of the buyers had mentioned to another "'that he was planning to move there soon.' The Watergate? That's way out of our league, old buddy. I can't afford a place like that. You have your inheritance, I said. That could pay much of the freight, so to speak, and you could borrow the rest, and I vow to you that after the move you'll be launched on a most promising trajectory. I don't think you understand. Morris swallowed more beer from his can. That would just about clean me out. Only if nothing else comes along, and you'll be able to sell your place to another buyer in the future, which might just pay off whatever I end up owing by then. I accepted another anchovy, then sat back on my haunches. Maury, think of an apartment in Watergate South not as an expense, but as an investment. If you're going to get anywhere in the world, you have to position yourself among individuals who can help you. "'Living at the Watergate will put you in close proximity to some influential people. "'And what if nothing else comes along?' "'Leave it to me,' I said. "'You promised to look after me, and I'll do no less for you. "'Trust me. After all, we're both in this together.' Maury accepted my advice in the end, "'largely because he couldn't think of anything else to do. "'I assisted him with his application to the Watergate Cooperative Board,' He easily won approval, since I was able to demonstrate by sitting quietly on his lap during his interview and allowing the board members to pet me how well-behaved a creature I am. By the beginning of January, we were ensconced in a one-bedroom apartment with balcony in Watergate South. By early February, with my advice on whom to call and where to submit his resume, Maury had secured a position on the staff of one of the senators of the Intelligence Oversight Committee, a gentleman who had always treated employees of the agency fairly and sympathetically whenever they appeared before him. Maury's salary was small, certainly not enough to cover our expenses— but he was now well situated, with his job and his residence, to meet people who could help him to rise in the world. By late spring, however, I was coming to see that more action on my part would be needed. Maury was not the sort of fellow likely to become a trusted and influential advisor to his senatorial patron, Indeed, he often brought work home with him or emailed it to his home computer so that I could peruse various studies and polls, read constituents' mail, and advise him on the wording of position papers. Instead of making influential contacts, Mori had made the acquaintance of a number of young ladies, most of them congressional staffers or interns. From then he seemed to require only that they be fond of cats and possess a quality he referred to as bodaciousness. I spent many a night lying on his bed while he and his companion of the evening slept, trying to conjure up a plan of action. Maury, I said to him one evening when we were by ourselves, it's time to cut to the chase. What do you mean? He asked, feeding me a scallop from his takeout carton of Chinese food. At the rate you're spending money on whining and dining and tennis-playing with your young ladies, we'll be lucky if we have enough money in the end to get to Tallahassee with a low fare ticket for you and consignment to the cargo hold for me. But you said I had to make an impression. Making an impression on young ladies nearly as penniless as yourself isn't exactly what I meant. You might at least find someone with more substantial assets. Maury looked abashed. It isn't as if I'm not trying. I mean, most of the time they're coming on to me. I don't ask, like, ask them out about their bank balances. You can't exactly expect a guy to say no when the opportunity knocks. I suppose not, but these weren't the sort of opportunities I had in mind. Anyway, it never lasts, he said. and By the time I'm ready to think about getting serious, they're dumping me and going out with somebody else. "'Which means that going on in this way,' I said, "'with companions who inevitably tire of you is both expensive and pointless. "'We have to take more drastic measures.' "'He quickly agreed to my tentative plan, which was hardly a plan at all. "'I was hoping only to scout the territory, so to speak, "'to see if there was any way to bring Maury to the attention of some of the wealthy "'and influential human beings who inhabited the Watergate complex.' I did not expect an opportunity to do so, to land right in front of me. Early the next morning, Maury and I left our building, he on foot and I in my carrying case. When he was certain that no one was watching us, he opened the case and let me loose. Since it was Saturday, Maury would be able to wait for me until I safely made my way back to Watergate South. "'Take care, little fella,' Maury whispered after me as I slipped out of my carrier." "'You'll be really careful, you hear?' "'He was being far too solicitous. "'I could easily find my way back, having studied a layout of the complex. "'In addition, I was wearing an ID tag that I had insisted he buy for me, "'one that had my name, Maury's name, and our address and phone number engraved upon its surface. "'Maury's father had always spared me the indignity of a collar, "'but it was best to be on the safe side.' If I did get lost, I didn't want to give myself away by having to ask for directions. I bounded across the grass, revelling in my freedom. Only a few people seemed to be out jogging on the pathway near the Potomac or wandering off with guidebooks in the direction of the National Mall. Birds twittered in the tree limbs overhead, and I thought of bagging one or two before resuming my reconnaissance. Then I spied a glittering loop lying underneath a shrub. I scurried over to examine the object and found what looked very much like a bracelet. There was no way to tell if the bright stones of this human limb adornment were of any value or were only cheap imitations, but something about the bracelet attracted me. I rolled around, swatting at it with my paws, and somehow managed to get it hooked around my neck. A short, sharp, extremely hostile sound suddenly interrupted my play, My ears twitched and my fur stood up. Even with my lack of experience in the out-of-doors, I recognised the sound of a dog's bark. I turned my head and moved my eyes, just in time to see a large beast bearing down on me from the right, still barking as a man ran after him, waving a long leather strap. The dog had slipped his leash and was on the warpath. I could either stand my ground and rely on my claws, or flee. There wasn't time to disentangle myself from the bracelet— I ran, expecting the dog to nip at my tail any second, and managed to claw my way up a tree. The dog circled below, howling and barking, until his human being finally caught up with him. I watched, clinging to safety, as the man hooked the strap onto his collar and led him away. My heart was beating rapidly. I stretched out on the limb, reluctant to venture forth again. Dogs weren't my only worry. There might also be stray cats in the area— In a desperate situation, I had a chance of intimidating a dog, but no cat worthy of my name would back down from a fight with me. I shook myself, trying to free myself of the bracelet, then forced myself to be calm. A survey of the area revealed that I was not that far from the entrance to the Watergate Complex's hotel, where a limousine was just pulling up to the entrance. Something moved below me. A woman in shorts and a baggy shirt was jogging towards me. She stopped under the tree and leaned against the trunk. "'Jesus!' I heard her say. "'Daddy's going to kill me. He's just going to kill me!' She sounded quite distressed. "'Mow!' I said, thinking that I might be able to use a little help making my way down. She looked up. Young Maury had always brought home attractive human females— "'but this one far exceeded them in beauty. "'Her hair was thick and dark, her eyes large and green, "'and her teeth were white as she smiled at me. "'You poor kitty,' she murmured, and then, "'Oh, my God!' wow, I said again as I crept along the limb. "'When I was halfway down the trunk, Hans seized me and gently set me on the ground. "'Nice kitty,' she showed me more of her teeth. You wonderful kitty. You absolutely excellent and terrific little kitty. She reached for the bracelet and removed it from me. You found my diamond bracelet. Daddy would have just killed me for losing it. She scratched my head. I purred then rolled around in the grass showing my belly. Are you sure you'll be all right? Do you even have a home? I wouldn't mind taking you home myself. I stretched and got to my feet. She knelt next to me and peered at my tag. Why you live around here? I think I better take you home. I squinted at her. I was tempted to scurry away, given that I had so little chance to explore my surroundings. But my encounter with the dog had dampened my enthusiasm for more adventures. An extremely large male human being seemed to be watching the young lady and me at a distance. And perhaps it was wiser to take advantage of the safe passage home that this female was offering. "'I allowed her to pick me up. "'She insisted on holding me with my head nestled against her elbow. "'Not exactly the most comfortable position, "'but I was able to endure my discomfort until we reached Watergate South. "'The doorman recognised me as we approached and quickly opened the door for us. Maury was lurking in the lobby, still clutching my carrying case "'as my captor entered the building. "'Angleton!' he said to me. "'Thank God you're safe. "'Is he yours?' The young woman said. Maury didn't reply immediately. I had a good look at his face from my vantage point. His mouth was hanging open and his eyes were as glassy as they had been when he first heard me speak. Is he your cat? The woman said. Are you Maury Carabas? The tag says he belongs to Maury Carabas. I wriggled around in her arms, then leapt to the floor. Hello, she continued. "'Anybody home?' "'Mori managed to close his mouth for a moment. "'Hello,' he said at last in a muted voice. "'Yeah, he's my cat. "'It's a good thing I found him, then. "'You really shouldn't let him run around outside, "'even if he did find my bracelet for me. I, "'I was afraid I'd never see it again.' "'Her arms tightened around me. "'You should be a lot more careful with this wonderful, beautiful kitty.' I know, but Angleton has a mind of his own. Maury still had a dazed look on his face. What's your name? Desiree. That's a beautiful name. This hardly passed as witty repartee, but the young woman was now staring at Maury in the same stupefied fashion as he was gazing at her. Maury's a nice name, too, she replied. I work for... Senator Trilby, a member of his staff. I'm here in Washington with my father, Desiree said. He always stays at the hotel when he's in town. They continued to stare at each other for a while, while I longed to feed Maury some more eloquent lines of conversation, until he leaned over and opened the top of the case. In you go, old buddy, he said as he took me from Desiree and deposited me in my container. Um... I know this is kind of sudden, but after I take Angleton back to the apartment, would you like to have a cup of coffee with me? Sure, I'll wait down here. I sighed with exasperation as Maury picked up the case, risking my hide so that he could find yet another young lady to waste his money on was not what I had in mind. You can come up to my place if you want. Better not. She gestured towards the doors. "'One of my security people probably followed me here. "'He won't bother us if I wait for you here, "'but he probably wants to check you out before I went off with you.' "'Your security people?' Maury asked. M- "'My bodyguards. It's, "'It's not my idea, but Daddy insists on it "'whenever I'm out jogging or shopping or wandering around.' The only thing he gave in on is that they have to keep their distance while they're protecting me. I mean, like, what kind of social life would I have if they were standing right next to me all the time? Bodyguards, I thought. People of limited means usually did not hire such protection. Perhaps this young woman had more substantial resources than I realized. With the crime rate in this town, Maury said, maybe your dad's... "'Got a good idea.' "'A man came through the entrance. "'Peering up through the metal bars of my carrier, "'I recognized the rather large individual I had spotted outside earlier. "'Geez, Jeffrey," Desiree said to this man. "'You don't have to come in here. It's cool. "'Look, all I was doing is giving this guy's cap back to him.' "'The man touched the cap over his brow with one hand. "'Never hurts to double-check, Miss Morlock.' "'Morlock?' Morrie said. "'That's my name,' the young woman said. "'Any relation to Roland Morlock?' Morrie asked. "'He's my dad.' "'I had to restrain myself from rolling around inside my carrier in ecstasy. "'A lost bracelet and an unleashed dog had led Morrie and me "'to the daughter of the richest and most powerful media lord in the country.' Maury and Desiree were soon keeping company. So much so that the Washington Post's society pages began to take note of the fact. Whenever the two weren't spending time in the Royal Suite at the Watergate Swiss Hotel, they were playing tennis, picnicking in Rock Creek Park, working out at the hotel's health club, playing golf at Burning Tree, attending yet another performance at the Kennedy Center, or jetting up to New York City after a weekend of theatre performances and club-hopping. Often I accompanied them on these junkets, packed in my carrier and safely in the keeping of one of Miss Morlock's bodyguards. That Desiree and Mori had a certain lack of intellectual prowess in common only seemed to strengthen their bond. However vacuous they might have seemed to many of their former loves, they never bored of each other. The two were together nearly every evening, and on those rare occasions when they were not, Desiree called on the telephone and engaged Mori in lengthy, if often monotonous, conversations— "'They spent their evenings at Mr. Morlock's hotel suite, "'where Desiree had remained even after her father returned to New York, "'or at Morrie's apartment, where they could barely restrain themselves "'from expressing their affections at almost any opportunity. "'The young woman's increasing fondness for Morrie also encompassed me, "'the cat who had found her bracelet and had enabled her to meet the man who had, "'so she proclaimed, become the love of her life. "'When they were not at Morrie's apartment,' The two brought me to the hotel suite with them. Whenever they dined on takeout or room service food, they fed me tidbits with their fingers, and because Desiree was always dieting, I had my choice of abundant leftovers. Even more miraculously, Ronald Morlock, upon meeting Maury, took a strong liking to him. I suppose that I can claim some credit for that as I was careful to rehearse Maury in a recitation of Mr. Morlock's prehistoric political views before he met his love's father for the first time. By repeating Mr. Morlock's various statements, or else keeping his mouth shut and nodding while the great man expounded on politics and society, Maury had made a stunningly good impression on Desiree's father. It's also true that Mr. Morlock had grown increasingly distressed at seeing stories about his daughter's nocturnal shenanigans regularly appear in the publications of several of his competitors. Morey, to his mind, was a great improvement over Desiree's past suitors. Mori's prospects had never been brighter. One of the wealthiest young ladies in the world adored him, and it was increasingly likely that their strong attachment to each other would eventually result in matrimony. Mr. Morlock, during his visits to Washington, often spoke of various executive positions that Maury might someday occupy in one of his companies. I should have been as delighted as a cat roaming in a garden of catnip, but I had miscalculated Maury's capacity for subtlety. "'Knowing that Mr. Morlock was extremely wary of young men "'who were unduly interested in his daughter's financial assets, "'I had advised Morrie to hint that he was a young man of considerable means. "'You don't want Ronald Morlock to think of you as a fortune-hunter,' "'I had told him, especially since young Desiree, according to a recent article in Vanity Fair, has already had a couple of unfortunate and expensive involvements with mercenary young men of dubious antecedents. The only way to convince him that you're not after his daughter's money is to act as though money doesn't matter to you. In other words, as if you have more than enough of it yourself. "'I always foot the bill when we go out,' Morris said. "'I'm not exactly a cheap bastard.' "'True enough,' I said.' well aware of how rapidly our scanty resources were being depleted, but we've reached a point where more is required. You're already living as a young man of means might, and you have an eminently respectable family background, thanks to your father, but it wouldn't hurt to drop a few hints about other assets. How the hell do I do that? I repressed a sigh, which would only have escaped me as a snarl. You might mention your occasional enjoyment of a good horseback ride in the Virginia Hills, thus leading Mr. Morlock to assume that you possess a horse or two, even a stable and a farm. You can imply that your broker was smart enough to get you out of the market just before the dot-com and telecommunications fiascos. You needn't say anything outright or make any overt claims that could easily be checked. The trick is to leave a certain impression. Maury not only followed my advice, but also exceeded it. Four months after meeting Desiree Morlock, he had managed to convince her father that he had a few million salted away in bonds and other investments, that the acreage of his Virginia farm encompassed a county or two, and that he had given up his late father's Georgetown home for the Watergate only because the house had evoked too many painful memories of his beloved sire. Had he been more discreet and ambitious, he might have been safely wedded to Desiree before her father discovered his true net worth. By then, Mr. Morlock, faced with a happily married daughter, would most likely have overlooked the matter, especially since he would have had to admit to himself that he had drawn his own conclusions too readily from some rather vague statement of Maury's. He was not a man who cared to admit his own mistakes.' but he was also not a man who would allow his daughter to marry a four-flusher. The truth would come out, either through Mr. Morlock's investigations or else in some published item by an inquisitive journalist. Morrie, by being too specific instead of ambiguous in his statements, would soon be exposed as an outright liar, and I had no way to avert the disaster that would ensue. Maury and Desiree had jetted off to Los Angeles in one of her father's Gulf Streams for a week-long vacation before Christmas. They had wanted to bring me with them, but I had explained to Maury privately that I had other fish to fry. There was much for me to ponder in his absence. I spent a couple of days at Maury's computer, which he had left on for me, distracting myself by researching real estate listings in Tallahassee. At last I removed my paw from the mouse and closed my overstrained eyes. THE TRUTH OF OUR SITUATION COULD ESCAPE ME NO LONGER. WE WOULD SOON BE penniless. THE LONGER WE STAYED IN WASHINGTON, AND THE MORE PROLONGED MORI'S COURTSHIP OF DESIREE BECAME, THE GREATER THE CHANCE OF EXPOSURE, AND OF MR. MORLOCK PARTING THE TWO LOVERS DECISIVELY AND FOREVER. IT WAS TIME FOR DESPERATE MEASURES. Perhaps if we decamped from the Watergate and headed south, Desiree would be moved to follow Morrie there and would quickly agree to marry him so as not to lose him again. It wasn't much of a plan, but I was hard-pressed to come up with anything more promising. We might be able to scrape together enough to afford one of the modestly-priced bungalows in the Tallahassee listings. As I contemplated this half-baked idea, there was a rattling outside our door. My ears flicked as I heard the almost imperceptible sound of the lock turning. Desiree had left her bodyguard, Geoffrey, at her hotel suite with orders to come over twice a day to feed me and clean out my litter box, but he had already completed his rounds. The door opened. The silhouette outlined by the lights in the hallway was much smaller than Geoffrey's large form. Someone was breaking into the apartment. I leapt down from my chair, frantically looking for a place to hide in the large room that constituted most of our living space. It was unlikely that a burglar would go out of his way to harm me, but I wanted a good look at the miscreant in order to be able to describe him later to Maury before he contacted the police. Hangleton? Hangleton, the intruder said. I had heard that voice before. Hangleton, I know you're there. The door slammed shut behind him. Heels clicked against the marble floor of the foyer. you better come out.' "'I slipped under the dining-room table, holding my breath, "'then crept towards our Christmas tree. "'An overhead light suddenly illuminated the room "'as I scrambled under the tree's lowest branches. "'Come out, Angleton,' the man said. "'You can't hide from me. "'I'm afraid I know all about you. "'Charles told me your secret just before his death "'while we were planning a certain operation in the Middle East.' I know all about what your role in that mission was to be. I saw his face now, and recognized Magnus Richard. For such an experienced operative to get past the doorman and our building security systems, and to acquire copies of our keys, was probably a simple matter. But why was he here? Perhaps the agency had finally given the go-ahead for the obstreperous dictator's assassination, and Mr. Richard was here to enlist my services in that effort. He sat down on the sofa. Here, kitty-kitty. I crept out from under the tree, still apprehensive. Mr. Karabas would never have confided our secret to his colleague unless he had trusted Mr. Richard implicitly. Yet I remained suspicious. If the man wanted my help in one of the agency's operations, surely he could have contacted me in some other way. No, I said. "'Don't get funny with me, Angleton. I know you can do more than meow. "'Charles told me all about your long conversations and how many languages you managed to pick up. "'I know you can understand every word I'm saying to you.' "'I moved a little closer and sat down a few feet away from his feet. "'I know all about you,' Mr. Richard continued, "'and I'm the only one who knows now that Charles is dead.' There is something I have to discuss with you, and unless we come to an understanding, your nine lives will pass very quickly, I promise you. My fur rose along my spine. He was threatening me. He would not have had to threaten me to enlist me in any agency operation. Evoking the memory of Mr. Carabas would have been enough to win my cooperation. Mr. Richard, I feared, was playing another game. Well, I said again. You better listen, you little fleabag. This isn't about what Mission Charles and I were planning. That never got past a couple of discussions we had by ourselves. This little meeting involves you and that doofus you're living with, and if you're not cooperative, a lot of very unpleasant things can happen to recalcitrant kitty cats and their masters. Nobody else in the agency knows about you either, so don't think you can go run into them for protection. I stretched out, still keeping my eyes on him. It's very simple. "'Mr. Richard said, "'You'll go on living with Maury, "'and every once in a while you'll report to me. "'That isn't asking so much, is it? "'Later on, when we figure out how to make the best use of him, "'there'll be more for you to do, "'but nothing as risky as what Charles was planning for you in the Middle East.' Once Maury's married to the Morlock girl, he'll start rising in her father's company and having somebody in place to watch him and maybe to help in using him later on could be very beneficial to us. He paused. Wouldn't surprise me if you had something to do with getting those two together. Somehow I restrained myself from hissing at him. Roland Morlock, who never missed a chance to wave the flag, either figuratively or literally, would happily have cooperated with the agency on anything they asked of him. So why all this hugger-mugger? In any case, given Maury's precarious situation, Magnus Richard would have had to find another way to spy on Morlock Enterprises. You better start piping up, Mr. Richard said, or it won't go well for you. He glanced towards the glass-covered door that led to the balcony. I don't even think a cat could survive a twelve-story drop, especially if I wring your furly little neck first. I sat up. Very well, Mr. Richard, I said, but I fear you're too late. Young Morty's marital prospects aren't looking especially good at the moment. Holy Christ, he said, "'You sound just like Jeremy Irons.' "'Not quite. I'm afraid I picked up a fair number of mid-Atlantic locutions from Mr. Carabas.' "'What did you mean, Maurice? Marital prospects aren't looking good. "'Is that morlock getting tired of him already?' "'All indications are that Miss Morlock is still besotted with him,' I replied. "'But that may not matter in the end.' Her father's probably already poking around doing background checks on Maury, and when he finds out how impoverished he is, he's not likely to consider him a fit mate for his daughter. There's nothing wrong with being broke. There is, if you've led someone to believe otherwise. Mr. Richard shook his head. He can't be that broke if he's living here. He's living here well over his head, I assure you. Mr. Morlock is well aware that Morrie's riches don't come anywhere close to equaling his own. That's not the problem. The problem is that he believes Morrie to be far more prosperous than he is. When he finds out, I can guess, Mr. Richard interrupted. He's going, I think Maury's a gold digger. He'll make sure they don't get married after all. Exactly. I kept myself still and restrained myself from flicking my tail "'But my mind was racing. "'Magnus Richard could not be here on the agency's behalf. "'He had something else in mind. "'I didn't know what kind of game he was playing or who was behind him, "'but he wouldn't be the first mole or double agent "'who had infiltrated our intelligence agencies, "'or the first who had decided a foreign power "'could reward him more lavishly than his own country. "'That's too bad,' he muttered ominously, "'and I smell danger.' "'He had threatened me. "'Now that I was useless to him, "'he might already be plotting how to get rid of me. "'About the most we can hope for,' I said, "'is that when Mr. Morlock learns the truth, "'he offers Mori a nice chunk of change "'to get out of Desiree's life. "'That wouldn't exactly serve my purposes. "'What I meant is that Mori, being the kind of fellow he is, "'would almost certainly turn down the money.' and at that point perhaps Mr. Morlock would be moved enough by his sincerity to relent. Mr. Richard scowled. I don't know if Morlock's that sentimental. I am sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings, I said, but whatever plans the agency might have for Morier may have to be abandoned. Despite my words, I was now sure that Magnus Richard was not here on the agency's business and kept my eyes on him. "'watching for any sudden and threatening moves on his part. "'It's a pity we can't just magically make large sums appear in his accounts.' "'Mr. Richard was silent for a while. "'Is that what it would take?' he asked, "'just making it look like he has a fat wad tucked away.' "'I sensed then that I was on to something.' "'Maybe I could use this man for my own ends.' "'Well, yes,' I said. "'If only Mr. Morlock's background checks "'could turn up a few million in accounts "'and investments in Morrie's name, "'we'd be home free. "'But it's useless to hope. "'I feel badly about that, Mr. Richard. "'You know that i do anything I could for you and the agency, "'but I might be able to handle this.' "'He rubbed his chin.' I can get the money wired to me since it would only be a loan. Maury won't need it once he gets past Morlock's background checks. True enough. it would be well worth it to me, and I just about promised that I could pull this off, get somebody in the Morlock's group. I just didn't tell anybody how I was going to do it. I'll get the money, Angleton, and open the accounts myself and backdate the records so it looks like Maury's had it for a while. That would... Be most advisable. I stretched myself and settled down on the floor once more. And I'll have to verify those accounts actually exist. I'll bring you all the passwords. He glanced at the computer. You can go online and check out the accounts for yourself. When you let me know Maury's past muster with Morlock, I'll close them out. And then you and I will stay in touch on a regular basis, and you'll follow my instructions, or... "'He let the word hang in the air. "'I assume,' I said, "'that I should tell Maury nothing about this arrangement. "'You are a smart little kitty.' "'He stood up. "'Just make sure you don't let me down.' "'I have no intention of doing so. "'Maury will be back in Washington next weekend. "'When do you plan to return here with verification "'that the accounts have been opened in his name?' Mr. Lichard thrust his hand inside the pockets of his coat. "'I think I can settle it by Friday. "'Then come back here after dark. "'I assume that you can find your way in here again.' "'See you then, Angleton. "'You don't try to cross me. "'You wouldn't care for the consequences to you and Maury if you do.' "'I slept restlessly the next day, "'my thoughts roiling as I tossed and turned on my favourite cushion.' Magnus Richard had to be in the employ of a foreign intelligence service. That was the only way he could have arranged for Maury to be worth a few million on a temporary basis so quickly. The red tape required by the agency would never have allowed for such a rapid transfer of funds. Someone wanted to plant an operative at the heart of Roland Morlock's media empire. For what purpose, I do not know.' but could safely assume that the purpose was not to improve television news coverage, produce finer motion pictures, or publish only the best of the world's literature. What could I do to foil Richard's plans? I could not reveal my secret to Desiree's bodyguard, Geoffrey, and enlist him as my protector. Morrie, however, devoted to me, would also be of little use in solving my dilemma— No one at the agency was likely to take the word of a talking cat over their most trusted operatives, and Richard would probably see that I ended up in a government laboratory for my pains. I could pretend to fall in with Richard's plans and string him along for a while, but there would be hell to pay when he discovered my deception. I took his threats quite seriously. I could rely only on myself. Realizing that plunged me into a deep well of despair and helplessness. "'I was unable to eat even when Geoffrey set down my favourite foods, "'unable to admit even the faintest of purrs while he combed my fur. "'Magnus Richard had as much as said that no one else knew about me, "'either at the agency or among his foreign contacts. "'Admitting that he would be working through a talking cat "'would have done little to establish his credibility.' The conclusion was inescapable. I could thwart Richard's plans only by getting rid of him entirely. But if I succeeded in that, I would erase any tracks that might lead his co-conspirators to me and Maury. The cloud of despair lifted a little at that thought. I forced myself up and padded through the apartment, working myself up to a run, flexing my muscles. My task was a dangerous one but surely no riskier than my foray into the Middle East would have been. After all, I was a cat, and therefore a superior creature, wasn't I? Magnus Richard returned at the appointed time on Friday. He had memorized the passwords for Morrie's temporary accounts, had me recite them, then allowed me to sit on his lap while he accessed the accounts on the computer. That should be enough to satisfy Mr. Morlock?' I said as the window's desktop reappeared on the screen. If he completes his background checks before Christmas and if Maury and Mrs. Morlock are officially engaged by New Year's Eve, you can close out the accounts early in January. It might be safer to make sure they're married first. They're likely to proceed to the wedding quite rapidly, I said. Miss Morlock is quite impetuous and her father is increasingly anxious to see her settled. I hopped down from his lap. If you'd care to toast our new arrangement, there's some scotch in the cabinet over the kitchen sink, and you might set out a can of salmon for me. I think I'd better be on my way. Then perhaps you can do me a favour, I said. I've been cooped up in here all week and wouldn't mind getting a little air. Could you open the door to the balcony for me? It's December, Angleton. Just for a minute or two. "'Cold weather doesn't bother me, what with all this fur, "'and I do need to stretch my legs.' "'Fine.' "'Richard shrugged back into his coat "'and walked towards the balcony with me at his heels. "'He opened the door. "'I took a breath as we stepped outside. "'The weather was colder than I had expected. "'The balcony dusted with a light covering of snow. "'I bounded across the balcony and hopped up onto the ledge. "'God,' Richard said as he came up behind me, "'it's cold as hell out here.' "'He was close enough to me now. "'His hands rested on the ledge next to me, "'and he had leaned forward slightly. "'I reared up on my back legs, "'extended my claws, and leapt at his face, "'aiming for his eyes. "'He was too fast for me. "'His arm came up, swatting me, "'and then I was suddenly falling from the balcony. "'A gust of wind called me from below. "'I spread my limbs as something hard rushed to meet me. "'For a moment I hung from the bare bough of a tree "'until my claws lost their grip.' I continued to fall, was briefly captured by another branch, and finally came to rest on a thick wooden limb. I lay there for a long time, afraid to move, then tentatively stretched my front legs. Apparently I was unhurt. The tree had broken my fall. Relief swept through me, raising my fur. I backed away down the tree, then leapt to the ground. Above me, "'Lights shone from the concave grill of Watergate South. "'If I circled the building and made my way to the front entrance, "'either the doorman or a resident returning home was likely to see me, "'and my tag would tell them where I belonged. "'I padded over the thin layer of snow, felt the cold against my paws, "'then thought of Magnus Richard. "'I had failed Maury and wondered what would happen now. "'Perhaps Richard assumed that I had met my demise.' and had already vacated our quarters. Perhaps he took nothing for granted and was already looking for me. In the distance I heard the sound of many human voices. A group of people bearing objects of light in their hands came around the side of the building. They were singing, and I paused for a moment to listen to their words. Silent night, they sang. Holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Then... A beam of light shot towards me. I froze, blinded by the light. A second later, a piercing voice called out, "'It's a lost cat!' I narrowed my eyes. "'The poor thing!' another person called out. The group of singers was coming toward me, and then I saw the shadowy form of another human being rush up from behind them. "'I think that's my cat,' the newcomer said, and I recognized the voice of Magnus Richard." I turned and ran, heedless of where I was headed, until I glimpsed a parkway and, just beyond it, the wrinkled dark surface of the Potomac. The sound of the traffic was a muffled roar. I crept down the parkway, flattening my ears as the roaring grew louder, then looked back. The singers were small shapes and patches of light against the serpentine curve of Watergate South. Magnus Richard was a large shadow with flapping arms bearing down on me. I hadn't realised he was so close. Angleton, he shouted, you won't get away from me. Terrified, I fled onto the parkway. Bright circles of light swelled as they rushed towards me. The shrieks and roars of motor vehicles nearly deafened me. Somehow I reached the other side of the thoroughfare unscathed. Ahead of me lay the river. I looked around frantically for another escape route. An odd screaming sound came to me, and then the sound of a loud, moist slap. I crept towards the parkway. The roaring sound was fading. Vehicles slowed, then came to a stop, their eyes of light still aglow. The dark shape of Magnus Richard lay in the road, unmoving, looking as though a giant arm had scooped him up and thrown him there. I was able to make my way back across the parkway and around to the front of our building. By then I was shivering from both nerves and the cold and was far too weak to call attention to myself. It was my good fortune that a neighbour of Maury's found me lying there and brought me to the attention of the night doorman, who wrapped me in a blanket and got a few drops of warm soup down my throat before I fell into a deep sleep. Maury returned home the next day. By then I had been brought to our apartment, and Jeffrey, summoned there by our building manager, was nursing me back to health. "'Well, little buddy,' Maury said to me after Jeffrey had left us, "'I heard all about your adventure.' "'Maybe you can tell me how you managed to get outside?' "'I considered how much to tell him. "'With Magnus Richard out of the way, "'there was no need to reveal the whole story. "'It would be wise of you,' I began, "'to advise the managers of this complex "'that their security procedures should be tightened. "'Somehow an intruder was able to get into this apartment.' While searching the place for something to steal, he opened the door to our balcony and stepped outside. Perhaps he wanted some air or to take in the view. Maybe he wanted to listen to some Christmas carols, Maury said. The doorman said there was a bunch of carolers here from George Washington University last night. I mean, even burglars probably have some holiday spirit." In any case, I slipped outside while the door was open, only to be trapped on the balcony when the door was closed again behind me. Knowing that I would surely suffer from exposure to the cold air, if I remained out there for too long, I forced myself to leap from the railing, hoping that the trees would break my fall. After that, I was luckily able to get to our building's entrance. "'You're a tough little guy, Angleton,' he gave me a hug. "'Got to admit it. I don't know what I'd do without you. "'Anyway, doesn't look like anything was stolen. "'Not that I have much to steal.' "'He hugged me again. "'You could have been killed. I "'Heard there was an accident on the parkway last night. "'I'm just glad you're safe.' "'Amori,' I said, "'I urge you to plight your troth to Miss Morlock as soon as possible. "'I think your courtship has lasted quite long enough.' "'I think so, too, and Desiree'd marry me in a second, "'but what happens when a old man finds I'm broke?' "'You needn't worry about that,' I murmured. "'I predict that he'll welcome you into his family with open arms "'after his background checks are completed. "'Let's just say that your assets may be greater than you think.' Mori and Desiree were married that winter.' in a hastily organized but lavish ceremony at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, followed by a reception at the plaza. Not long after that, Mori began his meteoric rise through the executive ranks of Morlock Enterprises— Although Mori benefited from my advice and was soon a well-known public figure through his frequent appearances on radio and television talk shows, celebrity-filled social galas, charity events, and political fundraisers, it soon became clear to Mr. Morlock that his son-in-law's particular gifts were perhaps better suited to some other occupation than that of managing a media conglomerate. Which is why now, four years after leaving Washington, "'Mori and Desiree and I are returning to that city. "'Much as I've enjoyed our time in Manhattan, "'with my own suite of rooms in our domicile, "'I'm looking forward to taking up residence on my old territory. "'As I was Mori's chief campaign adviser, "'I can claim some of the credit for his victory, "'although he might not so easily have won election to the Senate "'without the vast resources of the Morlock fortune to aid his quest.' To celebrate his victory, Maury bought me a handcrafted pair of red leather Italian boots, which may seem a rather odd, even kinky, accessory for a cat. But my back legs have never been quite the same since my terrified flight from Magnus Richard, and I find that a soft pair of boots eases my aches and pains considerably. I've grown more solicitous of my health lately. Controlling my intake of treats, working out on my treadmill, chasing catnip mice thrown to me by Desiree. With the opportunities that now lie ahead for Maury, I plan to be around long enough to wear my boots in the White House as first cat.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Pamela Sargent's. A big thank you, and a big thank you to Mr. Nick Cam for narrating that fine story. And also, Pamela just mentioned as well, have a look out for George, our partner, George zebowski 's stories. He's got a two collections, Black Pockets and Swift Thoughts, and they're available through this Galance Gateway as well. So I'll put some links on so you can go over there and have a look at Pamela's partner, George's work as well. Now, Stan, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for reading that bio out there. Give you a nice long one. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Did you, have you ever come across Pamela Sargent?
3: I don't think she has appeared in Analog, at least recently. I uh, think I did meet her once a long time ago, but uh, we, our paths have not crossed very often.
2: So Stan, let's let's get back to analog then, and you know the, the other kind of couple of big ones there, the, the Asimovs and fantasy and science fiction. What's the difference? You know, if if a writer of like a science fiction writer, why would he go to analog, or why would he go to, or how would he go to say Asimovs? Is there a certain story? You know, not just science fiction. Is there a certain class of story that people will say that's an analog story? You know, what was that for you? Well, actually,
3: uh, one of the problems I always had about that as an editor was that many people thought they knew exactly what an analog story was, and their conception of it was much narrower than mine was. Uh, A lot of people seem to think that an analog story had to be mainly about rivets and uh, a lot, lot of scientific and technical jargon and so on, and in fact, it doesn't. Uh, What we did try to insist on, and I I think it is fair to say that uh, we put more emphasis on trying to uh, base stories on real or at least marginally plausible science and to make sure that we got it right as well as we could than many magazines do, but I prefer to think of it as that we tried to put equal emphasis on the science and the fiction, to try to make sure that both aspects of the story were well done and well integrated. And the only sense in which I considered it a hard science fiction magazine was that uh, the, uh, we, we tried to see to it that there was always some element of scientific speculation that was so integral to the story that you couldn't take it out without making the whole story collapse and that we tried to make whatever science there was there plausible, which does not necessarily mean that it had to be closely based on well-established science as we know it, but if you based it on invented science, and I think readers should base stories on invented science sometimes, it needed to be invented a way that could be made logically consistent with what we already know.
2: And would you reject the story then, Stan, if, you say, your science side of it was a bit flaky, if it was a crack and good story, but the, the still had the kind of little bit flakiness on the the science, it was a bit, you know, cobbled together?
3: Well, uh, th- this is actually a fairly large part of what I did as editor. If I would see a story like that, that I thought was a a, a good story, but there were Problems with the uh, scientific background not holding together. I would try to work with the writer to fix them so that they would hold together.
2: Right. So you would actually just like write back and say we need to kind of change this, this, and this. And if you're prepared to do that, you could get in. Is that how it worked?
3: Yeah, something like that. I I tried to be very careful to never actually say if you do this, I'll buy it because uh, <laughs> there, there's a danger then that the writers say, well, I did that, and I said, well, I don't think that you did. <laughs> So uh, what, what I preferred to do was a trick that I learned from John W. Campbell when he was doing it to me as a writer, where he said, this is what bothers me about your story, and uh, challenged me to come up with something to change about it so that it would overcome his objection, and I would like it at least as well, too. And, uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes we would write letters back and forth several times, and, uh, a reason that I like to go to science fiction conventions, or to have writers come and visit me when I was uh, when they were in town and I was in the office in New Yorks, would be so that we could sit down over lunch or dinner or something and uh, actually talk about a story. And sometimes this worked very well, and sometimes it didn't. And Sometimes it just took longer than others. I remember one case where uh, I got a story from a a new writer that uh, I thought had a lot of problems, uh, but it also had a lot of potential. So I wrote him a letter and suggested some revisions, and he wrote back, and it didn't quite work. But I I noticed that he lived fairly near a convention that I was going to be going to. So I said, why don't you come down to the convention? Let's just sit down and talk about it for a while and see if that helps. And he came and I thought we had a pretty good talk. Then he went back and wrote another version that was even worse than the second one. And we we went back and forth like this three or four times. And finally we reached the point where I said, I I really am terribly sorry to say this because we've uh, both put a lot of effort into it. but It just isn't working and I don't know what else to suggest except that you go and try working on some different story. And a few months went by, and I didn't hear anything from him. And then I got another big envelope, and I thought, oh, I hope this is a new story. I hope it isn't just another unsuccessful attempt to fix that one that we had such trouble with. Well, I opened it up, and it it, it was a new version of that story. Uh, And it had one of the shortest, simplest cover letters I've ever seen. It said, here, try this. And it was a new version of that story. There was everything I hoped it would be from the start. <laughs> so so that was very gratifying.
2: And I guess you bought that one, did you then? Or? Yeah. That, is, is there, a, is it there was, a chance you could tell which story it was and which writer? Or? I think it was called Candle in a
3: Cosmic Wind. And the writer's name was Joseph mansion M-A-N-Z-I-O-N-E. And... Uh, I haven't heard anything from him for a long time but uh, I still think that was a fine story when we finally got it into shape.
2: You know what Stan you you're just kind of dismissing all my thoughts what editors are like, you know honestly because I'll, I, I you kind of grew up thinking editors get the first paragraph and it's thrown on the slush pile and it's chucked in the bin, it's no good. Next one, first paragraph no good, chucked in the bin. I never even dreamt for one minute you would kind of work so hard on a story
3: Well, you know, uh, actually it's more complicated than that because I I would never stop just after a first paragraph. I always tried to at least quickly read, uh, flip through a story looking for something to jump out at me. I'd read the first part of it slowly and then try to speed read the rest. And I I could speed read really fast when I was just trying to get the gist of something and see if there were any nuggets. And you, you can get very good at that with practice. But, uh if you, you think about the, the mathematics of the time, you uh, I have just told you how much work we put into that one story of uh, Joseph Menziani's, and uh, if you're doing that with some stories, you're not going to be able to spend very much on a whole lot more. So a lot of stories do get rejected very quickly, but uh, that's out of necessity, and it, it should never discourage a writer. You... Uh, most stories get that simply because there's no way to avoid it. But, uh, if, uh, if you keep doing it and you're doing something in the ballpark that some editor is interested in, sooner or later they're likely to notice you and, uh, uh, start paying closer attention. And, yeah, if, if I, I think all the editors I know, and I know a lot of them, uh, if, if we see a story from an unknown that Is almost what we want to publish. We get all excited about it and start being willing to put extra work into making it work.
2: Well, that's amazing to be quite honest. I never just totally different side of the industry. you know what I mean? I just always thought it was like a hard kind of you've just you know one in a million gets picked kind of thing, and it's it's all a big slog and all that work. Poor writers, I've got you know locked up in the the rooms writing these stories just to be. He tossed aside you know from one paragraph Stan that's just amazing stuff. And especially that example you've just give there you kind of get you know you kind of get any better help than actually meeting the editor you know sitting down and, and going over and meeting him and, and getting it worked out as well. yeah I,
3: I as a writer, I found the, the first time I got to meet an editor I, I went and uh, visited John W. Campbell a couple of years before he died. And uh, I thought that, well, I, I'm pro- he'll probably think I'm being arrogant to ask if I can come in and meet him, but I'm going to ask anyway because I'm going to be in New York. And I thought maybe he would say, okay, what have you got to say? And he would uh, give me 20 minutes and be thinking, this better be good. And actually, I got three hours of his undivided attention
2: and lunch uh, and a whole bunch of good story ideas. Start just going back quickly. Then to the, we'll, we'll get back into you. Kind of I want to talk about your, your life as well. But just on the, the kind of the story fronts coming into analog, how many stories did you receive in a week? And how many have you got to get through? Are you the sole guy that reads all these stories? Or have you got like an editor or someone else who can help you out?
3: No, uh, I, I'd say that there were ups and downs in the number. Of course, uh, we, we could even. After a while, I learned that there were certain times of the year that uh, we were likely to get flooded uh, with manuscripts or a scarcity of them. But uh, I'd say we averaged about 500 a month of various lengths. And I read them all, and I believe Trevor's reading them all. Um, Obviously, we have to read a lot of them very fast, so we have time for the ones that we spend a lot of time on. But uh, I suppose i could have had a first reader but i preferred not to for a couple of reasons uh one is that uh if i just dis- i if i was going to discover somebody which is for me the the biggest kick in editing uh if i was going to take credit for s- discovering somebody i wanted to really be the one who discovered and not just the one who rubber stamped what a perceptive uh assistant really discovered and the other thing is that uh the When you're discovering somebody that you want to work with but is not yet a polished writer, that is a special skill in itself. You have to uh, be able to recognize talent that is not yet fully developed in the skill. And... Uh, as I, I think Ben Bovis said something once, like, any idiot can buy Heinlein. The, uh, what takes skill is discovering somebody who can be Heinlein but isn't yet. So, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to read them that way uh, myself so I could not miss anybody who was in that situation. I, I can think, give you an example of that, too. Uh, Joseph H. Delaney was uh, one of our most prolific and popular contributors for a while but before that uh, he was just a lawyer in texas who happened to like to read astounding and later analog and he wrote me a a long letter one day saying you know one of the things i've always really loved about analog is that you're the magazine that tries hard to get your scientific facts straight now i wish you could do the same with law I said, well, I wish we could too, but the, the fact is that uh if a, a story hinges on law, we're probably if we want to make sure it's absolutely right, we're probably going to have to consult a lawyer and my understanding is that lawyers generally expect to be paid legal fees for legal advice, which we don't have a budget for. However, since you have expressed five and a half pages of interest in uh, making our handling of law better, how would you feel about being a free consultant in cases like that? <laughs> P.S. Your letter was fun to read. If you consider just writing your own law-based stories. <laughs> so so he did. And uh, the first one they said, I don't remember anything about, but the second one was uh, 67 pages long and... It had so many errors of storytelling technique in it that I doubt that the average inexperienced slush reader would have stuck with it for the first 20 pages. Uh, But I read it and thought, this is a born analog storyteller who has a lot to learn about method. So I uh, decided to try to help him learn. I sat down and wrote him a seven-page single-spaced letter which was devoted largely to trying to teach him to write concisely instead of like a lawyer. Now, you, you may be asking yourself at this point, how can you write seven pages trying to teach somebody to be concise? <laughs> well, the answer to that is that my seven pages consisted largely of examples where I was saying things like, here are the five lines you wrote, here's the line and a half you should have written. And uh, he took all that to heart, Learn very fast. And after a couple of revisions, I bought that story, published it. It wound up on both the Hugo and Nebula ballots, and with nothing else in print, he wound up on the John W. Campbell Award
2: for Best New Writer ballot.
3: So those are the things that make the job fun.
2: God, Stan, that's an amazing story, that. You know what I mean? I was going to ask you that is there any other writers, have you discovered writers we might know?
3: Oh, I suspect so. Uh, Timothy's on Very recent one is Ed Lerner. There are some that I didn't actually discover, but I published quite a bit, like uh, Robert J. Sawyer, uh, Lois McMaster-Boujold.
2: I should have had a list in front of me. No, that's right, because you're you're naming all them writers there, and they're all, you know what I mean? I, I know every one of them, so you kind of has as Have you seen that you a, a shift in change in writing, standing? You know, or like you say, you've been there that long. You must have seen trends come and go. And how how is the the kind of feeling now with analog? Is it everything going all right there?
3: Yeah, I, I think it is. It's a different kind of all right, of course. Uh, the uh, the The print circulation is much smaller than it used to be. But on the other hand, the magazine is now also available in several digital formats, and the sales of those are growing very rapidly. So overall, I I think the uh, future looks pretty bright for the magazine.
2: What did you think then, Stan, when digital was starting to come in? Did you kind of embrace it, or were you one of these thinking, no, you can't beat the, the dead tree variety?
3: Uh, no, I, I was pretty sure that it was going to take off and become an important part of things. In fact, I guess it was maybe 15 years ago I appeared on a convention panel with several other editors, and one of them amazed me by uh, saying something like, Oh, I don't think this digital stuff is ever going to catch on because uh, people love the feel and smell of paper in their hands. I was sitting there astounded that somebody in science fiction would be saying something like that because what she was really saying was the people of my generation love the feel, of smell of paper in our hands. There are generations growing up already who couldn't care less about that. They're growing up on digital.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, even... You know. Books in my house—they've all seemed to have gone, and it's—it's audio as well. Now you know, yes, you know, I've I've got myself a little Kindle there, and I get the e-books, but it's predominantly audio. You know, my side of the fence. Yeah. Stan, then let's talk about your writing. Then, can we see anything coming out in soon by you? Nothing new
3: coming out uh, that I can think of offhand, except the uh, guest editorial going to be in some issue of Analog soon. I'm not sure exactly which one. I am working on a novel. I, I don't usually talk to people much about the details of things that I'm working on, but th- this is a, uh, a novel that I like. Uh, I, I've been trying to find the time to work on for a, a, a few years now. And it's been very hard to concentrate. About the last three years have been consumed with trying to figure out how to retire from New York and move here and settle in, but it's picking up steam again now. And uh, I can give you, this is a tantalizing hint about it. That is, It's different from and unrelated to anything I've done before and my agent, Eleanor Wood, likes it well enough that she has encouraged me to go ahead and finish it without trying to get a contract first.
2: There you go then. Wow, Stan. That just before we go then, Stan, what's it like actually writing? I d are you one of these writers that it's just like drawing teeth out of a dead horse, you know, like it's just so much hard work or does, do the words come quite naturally to you?
3: Well, it depends on what stage I'm in. For for me, it's always very hard to start a project. Uh I start off very slowly. Um But if it's any good, it gradually picks up steam, and I find I'm going faster and faster, and it becomes as hard to make me stop as it was to make me start in the first place. Uh, As an example of that, the first time I did sell a novel on the basis of uh, a partial and an outline, it happened that uh, because I was a college teacher at the time and I had the summer off, I had a chance to work full-time on the partial and I wrote it in a 20,000 word partial in a couple of weeks. Uh, the first 4,000 words took a week and a half. The last 4,000 words took less than a day. <laughs> so <laughs> so th- th- this is why my, my problem for the last couple of years is that it has been very difficult to be able to systematically find time to uh, work on it, work on something At least a little bit every day, because when I can do that, I I do build up and sustain momentum. And when I miss an appreciable number of days, I lose it, and it's almost like starting over again. So I'm right at a point now where I think I'm going to be able to start uh, reserving some time to work on it systematically, and I hope to have that novel
2: finished within a few months. Oh, that would be fantastic. Stan, you know, with what I'm asking, Stan is: has technology went in any different direction than what you were expecting? You know, like you see in the '60s and '70s, it was all kind of the space race, but we seem to now went into the kind of the smartphone, wearable computers. Has has that changed? Did you expect it to go this direction? Yes. No. I I
3: think uh, that that's a very important point. That one of the uh, uh, biggest surprises in the development of technology, and a a case where science fiction almost completely missed the boat was uh, the the whole business of computers and how ubiquitous and pervasive they've become. Uh, Everybody predicted computers, but nobody predicted that they were going to permeate every aspect of life, uh, even for individuals as they do now. And Uh, you can find a few early evidences of it but we we are living in a uh, very science fictional world now and it's a science fictional world that science fiction largely did not anticipate so that's good Uh, keeps
2: us all busy Stan it's been an honor truly honor to talk to you today thank you so much for coming on the Starship Sofa.
3: Oh, thank you for having me
2: so that is today's show i hope you've enjoyed it a big big thank you to stanley schmidt stan fantastic sir we've had a couple of donations this week as well people have signed up to the monthly donations which is always lovely and a couple of like one time donations so big big thank you if whoever you know well I know who's done that I'm not going to tell you who's done that but a big thank you it's, it's I don't know how you know, all of a sudden they came kind of little short spurt so that was really nice thank you so much until next week just like to say night from me Ooh.
3: Audio, can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting
2: installment
1: of Stretching Sofa, Evacuation Procedure Machine. Shovel set for us. will be opened in three, two, one.